But um, let's open our Bibles today. We're doing a series in the book of Revelation, and in just a little bit, we'll get to Revelation chapter 6, but start out today in 2 Peter chapter 3. Today is the seventh week of our series in the book of Revelation, and today we come to chapter 6, and chapter 6 is the part of the book of Revelation that most people think about when they think about Revelation. I know there are some people that that, that love this book and they want to figure it all out. And there are other people who endure the book. There are other people who understandably feel like it sounds like science fiction. But when people get curious about the book of Revelation and they want to start thinking about some of the content, the, the things like the Antichrist and the end of the world and judgment and the mark of the beast and all of the really fantastic stuff that happens in the book, um, they're thinking about chapter 6 and beyond. Those things get introduced in chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6 introduces us to the end, the end of the story and the end of the world as we know it and the end of human history as it currently exists in our current time-space continuum, Revelation chapter 6 introduces us to the end that leads to the beginning. And, and that's the title of our series. The series is called Revelation, The End and the Beginning. Endings are inevitable, aren't they? I know that nobody wants a good season to end, but can you imagine how horrible it would be if there was no hope of a bad season ever ending? No, no matter how good a good season is, things have to end in order for us to experience something new. I mean, could you imagine if high school never ended? <laughs> Have you ever heard that song, by the way, High School Never Ends? It's kind of a hilarious song. But if high school never ended, that would be torture for some students. Now, if high school was amazing for you, you know, if you were the prom queen and you loved every minute of high school, then maybe you want it to continue. But even if high school was amazing, high school has to end. We have to have graduations and promotions. Um, we, we can't be high school students forever. Endings are necessary for, for people whose bodies have broken down, for people whose bodies are failing them. Thank God we won't have to be tethered to these bodies in these states forever. Every ending is a beginning, and every beginning requires an ending. And that's both good and bad, and exciting and sad. But that's also the reality of the, the era that we are in. Um, in Genesis 8.22, right after the great flood in Genesis, God speaks and he says, As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. So in this world, we will always be living in seasonal conditions. And I think one of the great arts of living well is having the ability to understand the times and the seasons that we're in. The, the older I get, the more I, I'm seeing that, that, that life has tides or, or ebbs or movements, if you will. 
And one of the arts of living is the ability to discern the moment that you're in and the ability to move with the tide. And when life moves you, when you're entering a new era, the ability to see it and step into that movement is absolutely crucial. You know, a letterman's jacket is great in high school. I'm still a little bit bitter toward my youngest daughter, Madeline. Jessica and I spent $300 on a letterman's jacket that she wore one time. <laughs> and granted, we're in the Inland Empire. It's always hot during football games, but still, she could have sweated a few times. I'm, I, I told her the other day, I'm taking that money out of your wedding money when that day comes. But a, a letterman's jacket is awesome in high school. It's perfect in high school. And, and you can probably get away with it for the first half of your freshman year of college. But there comes a point when the 30-year-old needs to change jackets and start wearing something else. Um, I, I don't ever want to lose Jessica. Jessica and I have been married 28 years, and she is the most remarkable person I have ever known. I have never known a human like her. In fact, she might not even be real. <laughs> But I will lose her at some point. And it won't be an ending and a beginning that I'm excited about. But according to Scripture, God will still be there. And there can still be good. When Jessica's father died, her mother, Margot, and both Jess and Margot will be in the second service. Um, when he died, after 46 years of marriage, Margot said these words. She said, I can't believe... I had 46 years with him. Wow. I would have thought she would say, I can't believe I lost him. Or this is so unfair. And it did feel unfair. And it was the worst time ever for our family to lose John. But, but, but that's not what she said. Margot thanked God for the beginning. She thanked God for the middle. And she embraced the end. And all of the new beginnings that that ending would bring about. I think that's pretty remarkable. Our world today is winding down. Science has told us this for a long time. Let's just go on a little thought journey for a quick second. We know from scientific theory and discovery that our world had a specific beginning point. We call that the Big Bang. There was a specific moment in time. There was an explosion that, that launched this, this rapidly expanding universe. So scientific theory has told us there was a beginning, there was an explosion, there was an expansion, but that the universe is also winding down. It had a beginning, but it will eventually have an end. You know what's fascinating is that Stephen Hawking, the brilliant scientist who gave a lot of language and validity to this theory, after um, uh, affirming all of this, he spent years trying to disprove it because he, 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 he was not a believer in God. And he knew that people would take this finding and this, this belief as evidence for God because the idea of a singular beginning to the universe that moves into this expansion and then eventually a decline that ends with an end, it comes straight out of Genesis, let there be light. Um, our universe had a beginning, it has been expanding, and it is winding down. Human civilization, human history had a beginning, 
It has been expanding and it is winding down. Um, the, the, the book of Daniel has a fascinating description of the end times. The book of Daniel describes that at the end of time, something really amazing happens. He tells us that at the end of time, there will be an explosion of knowledge. So listen to what Daniel says in Daniel 12, 4. It'll be up on the screen. It says, but you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall increase. One of the marks of the end of time and remember, we haven't gotten to scripture quite yet. Science has told us there will be an end of time. One of the marks of the end of time, according to scripture, is a radical increase of knowledge. Is it crazy to you how rapidly knowledge is expanding in our day? With, with the, the industrial revolution and then the technological revolution, knowledge is blowing up. There were, there were thousands of years where there was not a lot of movement. The time of Abraham to the time of Jesus was virtually unchanged, even though hundreds of years separated them. But in, in the last few decades, knowledge is just blowing up. And if you think about it, we are actually today grappling with the ethics and the ramifications of AI. We are living our sci-fi stories we're living Daniel's end times. We are seeing the decline of our planet with the melting of our polar ice caps, with dramatic changes in climate, with the interconnectedness of our world. You know, before technology grouped our world together into one giant global village, you could have wars on one continent where empires would rise and fall, and other countries weren't even aware of it, let alone affected by it. I mean, today, with the threat of global nuclear war, with such interconnectedness that the, the financial markets over there affect your 401k over here, it's, it's, it's a different landscape. The, the COVID pandemic showed us how quickly our world today can galvanize around events that could change our world forever. We just lived that. And we've seen it happen. And I could go on, but I think you're getting my point. I think that that's enough for us to agree that our times are accelerating. Our world has been expanding, but it's also been shrinking. And it's not a stretch to believe the science that reinforces the scripture that says that there will be an end. So this will be important by the time I get to Revelation because when we read Revelation, it sounds like science fiction. But if, but if we remember that it's just logical and it makes sense and the Bible has told us things are coming to an end, it will help us park the book of Revelation appropriately. Um, let's look at 2 Peter chapter 3. Here's how Peter talked about this. By the way, I could read this one chapter to you, 2 Peter chapter 3. I could read this one chapter, and then we could skip the rest of the book of Revelation. We could skip the rest of the series. Because in, in 13 verses, Peter gives a succinct, brilliant summary of everything in the book of Revelation. So if you want the spark notes, is, is it still spark notes? I think it was cliff notes when 
old-timers like Rick and I were in school, but I think it's Sparknotes and um, Quizlets. Is that, the, is that the latest? It's been a while for me, but anyway, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. Listen to these words. Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I have written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming, the second coming of Christ? Where is this coming that he promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also, the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth, so our heavens and our earth, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. And by the way, this doesn't just mean ungodly people. This means the destruction of ungodliness. This means wickedness has to be purged from the earth. Evil has to be purged for there to be heaven, for there to be perfection and beauty and goodness. The opposite of that has to be eliminated. So, so, so it's not as fantastic as it sounds. We're just talking about logic. If we're going to cleanse the earth and bring in a new heaven and a new earth um, centered around Jesus, those things have to be purged. But don't forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come. Like a thief, the heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives. As you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming, that day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire, and the elements will melt in the heat. But here it is. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So that right there is the book of Revelation. If, if we get that, we get the book and we understand it. And, and do you see our series title in there? Peter predicted an end that would lead to a new beginning and the new beginning is good. It's pretty remarkable to be living in a story where the author tips his hand in advance to let us know that the end of the story ends a particular way. As you live out chapters, and I know we don't know exactly where our specific chapter will end, but we know how the story ends in terms of God's good intentions for the planet and for humanity. Let me just read you one more. Let me read one from the Old Testament. Um, in Isaiah 65, Isaiah says almost the exact same thing. Isaiah 65, 17, God says, See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The formal things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create, for I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. 
I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and crying will be heard in it no more. Now that's Old Testament. So that uh, new heavens and new earth and righteousness and the presence of God and healing, that has always been God's planned ending. Don't you think the ending of a story is probably one of the most important parts of the story? I know sometimes, how many of you read? Does, does anybody read anymore? <laughs> they say that film is the new literature, so we all watch, but some people still read. And I know some authors get a little bit sadistic with their book endings. There are some authors that will let you read hundreds of pages and then dump this ambiguous or a shocking ending that just ruins the whole book. And, and I know that might make for good conversation, but it's not satisfying. I think Jessica and I, after all these years, we still talk about the Inception movie sometimes. And we'll still just check in, hey, do you think, do you think Leonardo DiCaprio was tumbled down in limbo or was he tethered to reality? So you think about these endings for a while, but those endings don't satisfy. Um, real quick, let me read you a couple of, of the other sadistic story endings that are out there. Did any of you have to read 1984 by George Orwell? Was that required reading for anyone in school? It, the, the book 1984 ends with four devastating words. He loved Big Brother. And if you read the book, and Big Brother, Big Brother is referring to the oppressive, crushing government regime, for the author to end that story after reading all of the trauma of that, to end with the words, he loved Big Brother, it's like a kick in the solar plexus for the reader. That same author... Um, wrote another book called Animal Farm. Listen to how he ends that book. This is one of the, 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 most, the most crushing endings, I think. He, he writes these words. The creatures outside looked from pig to man and from man to pig and from pig to man again, but already it was impossible to say which was which. I mean, what, what, what a commentary on the human condition. The human soul wilts under that. I, th I think we long for happy endings, like the, the ending of Harry Potter. The Harry Potter series ends this way. The scar had not pained Harry for 19 years. All was well. <laughs> or how about this one? Um, C.S. Lewis, when he wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, was actually telling the story of the Christian faith. So he was trying to tell the story just in very creative, allegorical terms. Here's how he concludes the entire series, The Chronicles of Narnia. So this is the finale of the last battle. As he spoke, Aslan no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world, all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read and which goes on forever and <clears throat> in which every chapter is better than the one before. I think the human soul is longing for that to be true. And that is exactly what the scriptures tell us is true. The ending of our world leads to the beginning of that world. 
Uh, Revelation 21 describes it this way. Revelation 21.1, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. I'm timing you. Thank you. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Verse 3, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and they will dwell with him. They will be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. That is the world that we are aching for. We are aching for life the way it was meant to be. I think the world that we're in right now can only ever partly satisfy. I think our world is amazing. And I think it can stir up our greatest desires. But this world as it is cannot fully satisfy our deepest human desires. It can tease, it can evoke, it can promise, but it cannot fully satisfy. Let me just read one more C.S. Lewis quote. In his book, Mere Christianity, this is, this is so profound from Lewis. He says, the, the Christian says, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exist. A baby feels hunger. Well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such a thing as water. People feel sexual desire. Well, there is such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that this universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it to suggest the real thing. And so if that is so, I must take care on the one hand never to despise or be unthankful for these earthly blessings, but on the other hand, never to mistake them for the something else of which they are only a copy or a preview to come. And then he says, I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find until after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of my life to press on to that country and to help others do the same. And when we get to Revelation chapter 6, finally, we have come to a tiny moment in human history, a tiny moment, maybe a seven-ish year moment in human history where that ending finally happens so that promised new beginning can actually begin. Revelation chapters 6 through 20, there's 22 chapters in the book, 6 through 20 contain all of the fantastic imagery of, of the dragon and the beast and Babylon and all these incredible crazy things. All of that occurs in a microscopic moment in human history about seven years. If we take this book of Revelation literally, and by the way, remember with me, there's a couple ways that people read the book. Some people read Revelation more as allegory. So it's true, but it's a story. It's a creative way of telling us truth, but it's not like a literal description. Other people read Revelation as a cycle of ongoing patterns that happen in every generation. 
So every generation will face antichrist spirits, antichrist systems, but not the antichrist. But if we take this book literally, which a lot of people do, and if we just do a simple reading from start to finish and we take the book at face value, here's how it shakes down. Are y'all still with me? You can start a timer. I'm going to teach Revelation 6 through 20 in about seven minutes right now. <laughs> but, 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 but lean into this and think of this with me and remember the context. The world had a beginning. The world is winding down. We are aching for a new beginning. So it's in that context of stuff that we all can agree with and resonate with that the scripture says this is how it happens. So here we go. In Revelation chapter 5, John the apostle, who's having this vision while exiled on the island of Patmos, sees a scroll. So picture a scroll in your mind. This scroll is sealed or shut with seven seals. So you can picture the wax seal of an ancient document where you, you would use the wax to seal a letter. Or if you want something more modern, you can picture snaps or buckles holding the scroll in place, but there are seven of them. The scroll is, has writing on it on both sides. The writings contain promises and judgments. Scholars often refer to the scroll as the title deed to planet Earth. So the fate of the planet is written inside this scroll. And John, when he sees the scroll, he begins weeping uncontrollably. Just paint these pictures as I'm talking. Let's just have a little mental picture moment for just a few minutes. He's sobbing because he intuitively understands that there is no human who is actually able to handle the scroll or its contents. He's crying and crying until finally an elder, um, in chapter 5, verse 5, this person next to him says these words, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And so in Revelation chapter 6, verse 1, Jesus, the Lamb of God, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, Jesus begins to unfold the scroll. As each scroll is opened, things or each seal, things happen on earth. And, and, and just to make this super simple, the entire book of Revelation is nothing more than the unfolding of the scroll. Every time one of the seals opens, something happens on earth. Remember, there are seven seals. For the first six seals, as they're opened, human-induced trauma happens on earth. So the consequences of mankind's issues, things like dictators and war and economic ruin and martyrdoms and persecution, the things we're already seeing in our world, um, global upheavals, man-induced consequences happen every time a seal is opened. There's one consequence for each seal, okay? I open a seal, something that man brings on himself happens to the planet. When we get to the seventh seal, there's not a judgment. When the seventh seal is popped open, now seven trumpets sound. Now, now remember, he's describing a vision. You ever tried to describe your dream over breakfast? It's weird. 
But the sixth seal releases seven trumpet blasts. With the blast of each trumpet, more trauma happens. When the seventh trumpet sounds, seven bowls appear. And the bowls are filled with even more trauma and wrath and, and horrifying stuff that get poured out onto the earth. But something uh, happens in between the seals and the trumpets and the bowls, we shift from mankind's self-induced trauma to God's actual judgment being poured out on the earth. That's very important to understand. And, and by the way, why does God have to judge the world? Because he's good. Because he has to. He's just. And if we're putting our hope in a just, good God, the just, good God has to judge injustice. God has to judge trafficking and trauma and abuse and, and horrifying things that people do to each other. So judgment is actually the goodness of God. And, and the world has to wind down. But here's a super important point. Remember, if we just read this with a simple literal reading, as the first six seals are opened and human calamities happen. Both Christians and non-Christians are on the earth to experience it. However, when we shift from the seals to the trumpets, and it's God's wrath being poured out, there's a shift. And the most amazing things happen. It'll, it'll show you on the screen, but you could turn to Revelation 7 if you want. In Revelation 7... Verse 9, John says, after this, so after the sixth seal, so when this shift between man's issues and judgment occurs, after this I looked, and John is in heaven seeing this vision, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation and tribe and people and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. So the nations have suddenly shown up in heaven is what John is telling us. They were wearing white robes. They were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Verse 13, one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they? Where'd they come from? And I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. He who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger, never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is what some people refer to as the rapture. That's the idea of God's people being caught up to heaven before the final end time. So follow the sequence again, okay? In a very brief window of time, maybe seven years, God unfolds the consequences of the scroll. When it's man enduring what man has done, God's people and the world's people experience it together. Jesus told us, hey, the rain falls on the just and the, the, the unjust. But when it shifts to wrath, when it shifts to, to the, the judgment of God falling, God's people are removed. Why? Because of Jesus. 
Because when Jesus hung on the cross, the sins of the world were placed on him and the wrath of God was poured out on the sin that was located in the person of Jesus. So if a person is in Jesus, they have been spared from the wrath of God. Now that idea can fill a whole book. Let me just give you one scripture. Revelation 5.9, since we've been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? I'm almost done. It probably takes a few years for wars and financial ruin and all of the issues of those first six seals to happen. And while those things are happening, the church is there, hopefully loving people hopefully serving and praying and being, being light and, and testifying to a greater reality. But when time comes for, again, it's a brief window of judgment um, that the people of God are spared. And then um, the seventh seal occurs. And by the way, if that sounds harsh, why would God move his people away when he's about to punish the rest of everybody? It's not harsh. I'm giving you the overview, but if you do a, a thorough reading, we, we read in this book that there are angels who bring the gospel in that time. There are moments of judgment where it says even then people wouldn't repent, and that tells us that God is still drawing people to repent. So judgment is not, I'm going to squash you. It's, hey, you didn't listen to me here and here and here, so now I'm going to intensify it. Peter told us God's heart. I am patient because I don't want one person to perish. So this isn't harshness or unfairness. This is God doing everything in God's power to win and draw and, and bring people to him. But when the seventh seal is released and the judgments happen, um, we're looking at a couple of year window. And it's during that time that a trinity of evil emerges. Our trinity is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. In the book of Revelation, an evil counterfeit trinity emerges. That trinity is the dragon, which is Satan, the beast, which is the Antichrist, and the false prophet. And this trio of evil form a coalition, and they attempt to seduce and entice and capture the entire world. Now, again, it sounds so fantastic, and I know I keep harping on this, but we're talking about just a, a brief moment. So you shouldn't be spending your entire life wondering if all of this is happening. If we're reading the book literally, this is a very brief moment. When this trio of evil happens, you have to go along with it to function in society. So there's a mark of the beast that's issued. And let me have you turn to this verse. In Revelation 13, 8, this is probably one of the scariest parts of the book, when there's the rise of the Antichrist and then the mark of the beast, and you can't function unless you receive the mark. And in my life, in my 51 years, I've heard so many people, wait, is that the mark of the beast? Oh, hold on a second, my driver's license, my social security card, and everybody's looking, is, is this the mark being issued? And, 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 but I want you to see the very next verse. Right after this verse, and, and actually, let me, let me read it. Revelation 13, 18, this calls for wisdom. Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. That number is 666. And then look at the next verse. Chapter 14, verse 1, very next verse. Then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb. That's Jesus, standing on Mount Zion. And with him, 144,000, and that number speaks to completion, um, who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. 
So as the mark of the beast is issued to people, there's a return of Christ immediately on the heels of that. And then a company of people who have been marked by their father's name. And then remember where the church has been during this time. Microscopic moment of time. And the church has not been there because the church returns with Jesus, which means you and I will always face antichrist issues. But if the literal reading is true, you're not even going to see the antichrist if you're in Christ. Some of these things occur, if the sequence is, is literal, occur later. And you will experience the woes of our planet because we live on this planet, but you never need to fear the wrath of your father because he is your father and he's good. When Jesus returns in the book of Revelation, it's almost anticlimactic. Oppressive antichrist systems are overthrown. One angel ties up Satan with a chain for a thousand years. During the thousand years, Jesus sets up a kingdom on earth. It's not heaven yet. It's not the creation of the new earth yet, but it's one giant step toward that. If we were playing Mother May I, this is a gigantic step toward that time. We call those thousand years the millennium. That is another opportunity for the residents of this planet to be drawn into the family of God. At the end of that time, Satan is allowed one final rebellion, which gets snuffed out. And then we have the end that we've been leading up to. We have the final judgment where people are consigned to their eternal states, either heaven, which is life, or hell, which is death. And then we have the inauguration of the new heaven and the new earth and all of the things that have been promised. And the literal reading of this covers a tiny moment in history. It probably won't happen in our lifetime. Now, it might. There's always somebody preaching that it will. I, I think we are living in Daniel's end times. I think our world looks a whole lot more like this than it ever has before. Uh, but remember what Peter told us, God is very patient. And a day with the Lord is a lot longer than our reckoning and our understanding of time. So it might happen in our day. I don't think that it will. But whether it does or doesn't, we still live the same way. I don't know if that was longer than seven or eight minutes, but, but that's Revelation chapter 6 through 20. What in the world do we do with this? Remember, I didn't just read science fiction to you. We know that there will be an end. Hollywood tells us maybe it's, an, maybe it's a, an asteroid that hits the planet. So there are lots of things out there of how it could end, but we know there will be an end. This is what the Bible says. God has been working in human history. God has been calling a people. There is an ultimate life that humans today are aching for. What did Peter tell us of how to, how to live? He didn't say you live in trauma and you live in fear and you live trying to connect the dots. He didn't say you watch the news every night wondering, is that it? Is that it? Is that the Antichrist? Is that? He didn't say you live in frantic preoccupation with how it's all going to shake down. He said you live holy lives. That means set apart. You live prayerful lives. He said you live lives that speed its coming. What does that mean? It means we live lives that model for people that there is something else coming. We're actually called prototypes of the new creation. 
when we respond to Jesus and we find forgiveness for our souls and the Spirit fills us, we're supposed to be little replicas, little, little, little examples of what new creation actually looks like. If we're living well in our times, we will go to Leilani Menjavar's quinceanera, which we did yesterday here in the room. It was phenomenal. If we're living well, we're going to watch soccer matches. Although, do not tell me how the U.S. did. I'm begging you. I, I'm going to watch that later tonight. I'm trying not to hear the score of the World Cup. We, 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 go to, we go to our kids' games. We do Eagle Scout projects. We show up to work. We do barbecues. We reach out to our neighbors. We pray like we've never prayed before. We live the best lives possible. We max out our moment in time. And if we do that, we will be ready for whatever comes. We don't become shrill. We don't become harsh. We don't start to act like it's us versus them. We don't, we don't forget that the battle is spiritual. It's not me versus them or this party line versus that party line. We realize I belong to a different kingdom. I'm here, but it's not my ultimate home. I ache here because it strikes the chords of where I'm destined to be, but I'm destined to be somewhere else. This allows us to travel light. It allows us to be happy warriors. Jesus, right before his crucifixion, he said to the disciples, he said, hey, gang, in this world, you're going to have trouble. But hey, cheer up. I have overcome the world, which means we can walk through these times right alongside the overcomer. So do not be afraid of the book of Revelation. Do not be afraid of all of the trauma that's happening. We see it. We're sober. We live lives that count, but, but, but we don't become obsessed. You know, people who see Bigfoot often spend the rest of their lives obsessed with Bigfoot. P people who see crazy things out there that defy the natural, they, they get obsessed and it just completely takes them out of life. If that happens with Revelation, we're reading it wrong. That wasn't the purpose. John told us there's a blessing attached to the person who reads the words of that little book. So let's walk in the blessing of it. Let's be more like Jesus than ever before. My, my very final thought um, oh my gosh, I, I love, I love, love, love reading church history. And at the start of every new year, I read Fox's Book of Martyrs, which is an account of the eras of persecution in the church. And I read a, a book on church history. And I always picture a chain link chain um, connecting the different eras of church history. And God wanted you to live in the 21st century. You could have lived in the wild, wild west. You could have lived in the 1400s with Joan of Arc. God wanted you here. And I don't want to be part of a weak link in the chain. I want the church and our church to be just so rock solid that when God surveys church history, that link stayed true. That link got the job done. That link was faithful and represented me well and looked like Jesus and left a positive, beautiful mark on the world.